Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. The passage we're going to look at this morning is Exodus 6, verses 1 through 30. Uh, we're going to read uh, verses 2 through 8. You can follow along with me in your copy of the Scripture. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can grab one of the black uh, Bibles that are in the chairs around you. Certainly, are, uh, you can keep that if you need one. The words are also going to be displayed on the screen, so you can follow along with me as I read there. After we read Exodus 6, 2 through 8, just have a brief time of prayer before we uh, get into our message this morning. Uh, Exodus 6, beginning in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Egypt, excuse me, people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I don't know if you've been to Iraq recently. Maybe not, right? Well, they have a problem in Iraq. Uh, a lot of people are getting kidnapped. They have a kidnapping problem in Iraq because what it is, there's a lot of these uh, groups evil intent, looking for ways to stir things up, cause problems, what they do is kidnap foreigners as a way of destabilizing things, spreading fear, these sorts of things. And I mean, sometimes foreigners are rescued and other times they're not. I mean, let's be honest, most of the time they're not. And the problem is kind of twofold. Is number one, it's kind of a different situation than we're used to. There's a lot of tribal factions, these sorts of things. The other thing is Iraq doesn't necessarily have the resources to investigate all these kidnappings. And finally, part of it is a motivation. Another foreigner got kidnapped. Must be Monday. You know, what are, we, what are you going to do? Now, but the problem that they're facing, though, is it's sort of a PR problem. People aren't planning their next vacation to Baghdad. I'm not. Maybe you are. Um, the issue being, I mean, there's a lot of places over there you might want to see. World uh, historical sites, uh, and there are reasons to travel to that part of the country. So what they do is when there is a rescue, they make a big deal out of it. In a month or two, maybe the last six months, a couple of Filipino foreigner uh, travelers were rescued. And, of course, the government of Iraq made sort of a big deal out of it. Look, we rescued two of the thousand people that got kidnapped this year. So the question is, why did Iraq rescue these two foreign Filipino women? Because they needed to for a PR move. Good foreign relations, keep things copacetic with the other countries. Well, the question you might ask yourself as we look at the people of Israel in Egypt and we wonder, here comes God who's going to rescue them out of Egypt, it, you should ask this question. I think it's a fair question. Why would God save Israel 
And connected to that, why would God save us? What motivates him? Is it a PR move? Is he taking some hits from the PR standpoint? Does he have nothing better to do? There's nothing on Netflix, so that well, okay, I'll save Israel. Why would God save us? Look at Exodus 5, 22 and 23. Moses, of course, had confronted Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I don't think so. I'm going to make your work really hard, and I think I'm going to kill all the Hebrews. People of Israel sort of freaked out. Moses sort of freaks out, and he prays this prayer. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, this is Exodus 5.22, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. You have not delivered your people at all. Why, O Lord, did you send me to save the people? You're not doing the job. Something we need to understand as we try to answer this question, why would God save us, is this. And we're going to use this sort of as a way of understanding what God is up to. It turns out there was more at stake in Egypt than whether or not Moses had a good day. It turns out whether or not things went well for Moses was not the priority God had in saving Israel. Did you notice that? Since God sends Moses to the time they get to the promised land, how many good days does Moses have? If he had them, they're not written down. It turns out there is more at stake here than whether or not Moses is having a good time, whether or not Israel is having a good time, whether or not they're hashtag blessed. That wasn't, that was rude. Some of you, what's a hashtag? Google it. If you don't know what Google is, I can't help you. Why would God save us? We're going to start in verse 14 and work backwards today. Why would God save us if it wasn't just to give us a good day to bless us? Why would God save us? We need to understand this. And I think the Bible will tell us this morning. First of all, why would God save us? Look at verse 14. It's a genealogy. I'm not going to read it all. You're welcome. You can read it on your own. Why would God save us? First thing, he wants us to see his trustworthiness. Why would God save us? First of all, he wants us to see his trustworthiness. Now think about it this way. There's a a group of demonstration aviators called the Blue Angels. The Blue Angels are uh, aviators for the Navy, and the pilots of the Blue Angel uh, aircraft are both naval pilots as well as marine pilots, and they're selected to demonstrate the capabilities of the aircraft as well as the pilots to the public. Who's seen the Blue Angels? Raise your hand. Who's seen them? Okay, you've seen them. You know what I'm talking about then. The the mission of the Blue Angels as an aircraft wing is to demonstrate to the public the professionalism and capability of naval aviation. They do a pretty good job of that. If you go to a Blue Angel outfit uh, demonstration, you go, those guys can fly. I bet you, if they had to fight somebody else in an airplane, they would win. The Blue Angels demonstrate their capability that we might have some trust in their ability to defend America's interests. So Jesus, or I should say God, comes to Moses and says, I want to save you. And one of the reasons is I want to demonstrate my trustworthiness. Look at verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses. Here's how Israel was organized. 
God called Abraham. Who knows Father Abraham? Many sons? Okay, good. Had Abraham. Abraham had a promise given him to buy God that he would have lots of kids and he would have a land. God then continues that promise from Abraham to Abraham's son, who was named Isaac. Good. So Abraham had a promise made to him, and that promise carried on to Isaac. So Isaac was the son of the covenant. Isaac then had a son, and his son's name was Jacob. And Jacob was the son of the covenant. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac had other sons, but they weren't sons of the covenant. The son of the promise is Jacob, and Jacob had a new name, which was Israel. So all of the sons of Israel are the sons and daughters of the promise of God. I will give you a land, and you will be my people. And so now in this genealogy, he's going to tell us about the sons of Israel, three of them. And that sons of Israel, there was actually 12, they were the tribes of Israel. And the firstborn son was Reuben. Look in verse 14. These are the heads of the houses. Reuben. He was such a great son, they named a hot dog after him. It's delicious. Good strong sauerkraut and a dill pickle spirit. Man, I'm hungry. We need a wiener schnitzel in Medford now that I think about it. Okay. Sorry. It was a little ADD moment there. So you have Reuben, firstborn son. All he says is, yeah, he had a couple of kids. Then verse 15, the sons of Simeon. That was the secondborn son of Israel. Another tribe of Israel, Simeon. He had a couple of sons, good for him. Then verse 16, the son, these are the names of the sons of Levi. And this is where we stop. The other nine sons of Israel are not mentioned in this genealogy. All he does is then describe many of the sons of Levi culminating with Moses and Aaron. So Moses and Aaron are among the sons of what? Levi. And he's making a point. Moses and Aaron, through which God will bring his law and the tabernacle system and the worship of God are Levites, and the Levites are going to be set aside for the priesthood. Look at verse 26. These are the Aaron and the Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. Here's what God is saying through this little genealogy. I made a promise to Abraham. I made a promise to Isaac. I made a promise to Jacob. And I mean to keep it. I am a covenant-making God, and I am a promise-keeping God, and I want to save you as a means of showing you I do not forget my promises, and I always keep my promises. Moses and Aaron going to Egypt to call out the people of Israel is to remind Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel God keeps his promises Every promise God has ever made, God has kept. A promise made by God is as good as done. Moses and Aaron matter. Why? Because they're handsome devils? Because they're well-spoken? Influential? Lots of money? Friends in the right places? No, none of these things matter. Frankly, they had none of these things. Moses and Aaron matter because the covenant matters. And the covenant matters because of the covenant maker. Who made it? God did. How often does he keep his promises? Always. 
God is the covenant-making God. God is the covenant-keeping God. What if they disobey? What will happen to the covenant then? Remember the covenant. Okay, now we're off script. Just give me a minute. Are you ready? Remember when he made the promise to Abraham in Genesis? What did he do? He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise, give you lots of kids, give you lots of real estate. It's going to be off the chain. Something like that. Go get some animals, cut them in half, and lay them out. And this was a normal way of making a, of signing a treaty. And we've talked about this before, but as a reminder, what would, what would you do if you were a big, strong king and yet a little weak king and you were going to make a treaty with him, what would you do? You'd make the little scrawny guy pass through the animals. After he passes through the midst of the animals, what do you say? If you break my treaty, I will do to you as has been done to these animals. That's gross. Say, I don't want to be cut in half, much less I don't want to be cut in half long ways. That seems much harder. But what happened in the Abrahamic covenant? What happened? Who passed through the animals? God did. God says, may it be done to me if you do not keep my treaty. God is going to keep his promises, and it is not dependent on Israel doing a good job with it. He is a trustworthy God. Moses and Aaron matter to Israel. Moses and Aaron matter to Egypt, not because they're Moses and Aaron, but because they are of the tribe of Levi, who was of the son of Israel, who was the son of Isaac, who was of the son of Abraham, who received a promise from God that will be kept. Covenant matters because God keeps his promises. Listen, the Bible is telling us about God's intervention in human history to make a way for sinners to have a relationship with God. He's been doing this since the beginning, since Adam and Eve. He says, I'm going to tell you about my mission to save sinners through human history. And that, uh, that history of God intervening to provide salvation to us only matters because God can be trusted. His promise to save sinners through the people of Israel, his promise to save sinners through the Messiah, is only useful because God is trustworthy. I would even say this. Because God is trustworthy, the covenant matters. Because God is trustworthy, redemption is all that matters. Since God is trustworthy, his promises are certain. And since God is trustworthy, his promises are the only thing that matter. Let me put it this way, and then I'll move on to the next point. When we understand that God keeps his promises, and his promises are all about drawing us out of slavery to sin into himself, our only response ought to be, by faith, how do I get in on it? And having gotten in on it by faith, how do I fit into the story God is telling about redemption? Since the only thing that matters is redemption, because God is a promise-keeping God, how do I get in on it? What's the answer? Faith. What about faith and works? No. Heresy. Moving on. It's just faith. I trust him. And he's telling us he's trustworthy. I trust him. Good. I get in on it. Then I ask this question. Well, now that I'm in on it, how do I fit into this grand history he's telling about saving sinners? That's the way we ask these questions. But this is how we normally ask these questions, by we, I mean uh, all of us, including myself, we say this, God keeps his promises. Oh, really, what's in it for me? Okay, I get saved, so then what? What's, what do I kind of, what's the payoff? Is there a payoff? 
We don't ask the question, how do I fit into God's grand plan to tell the world he saved people? What do we say? How does God fit into my life? I've got a lot of things going on, and I've got the contours of my life. I think God might kind of fit into some of the nooks and crannies. Kind of make, make me feel a little bit empty to being a little bit full. That sounds like a sweet deal. And God says, no, 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 that's not how this works. You're going to fit into me. I'm not trying to fit into you. Moses and Israel are going to learn this over time, and we're going to get into it more detail over the next weeks we're in Exodus. But we find this out. God doesn't save us to get us out of trouble. He saves us because he's trustworthy. Maybe another way of saying it, and I, an author has put it better than I can, our salvation is all about God. Our salvation is for us. It is about him. The subject matter of our salvation is God. We just happen to be the recipients of it. Why would God save us? What's the first one? He wants us to see he is trustworthy. All right, let's uh, keep going backwards. Back to verse 9. Back to verse 9 of Exodus chapter 6. God says this to Moses in verse 8, I'm going to bring you out of the land, I'm going to give you a possession. And Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. There's an explorer, he's British, I don't know if I've mentioned him before, but maybe you've heard of him. His name is Benedict Allen. And he's kind of an interesting explorer. He likes to go into these very remote places with no safety net, like no satellite phone, uh, no pager, if they make those anymore. Uh, no way, it's just go in and see if you'll live. And what he was doing here recently, I think it's been in 2018, he went down to Papua New Guinea, and what he wanted to do was make contact with this very remote group of people. Really, it had very little to no contact with modern humans. So he went in like he normally does, no safety net, no cell phone, no satellite phone, just the backpack on his back, and he's going to go in and try and meet these people and see what happens. And uh, when it comes time for him to come out, he doesn't show up. Like for a long period of time, I don't know long, but at least uh, several days, weeks, maybe even months, he doesn't show up at the extraction point. So they don't know what happened to this guy. Finally, one of the organizers of the expedition rented a helicopter, and they flew in, and they looked for him, and they finally found him in this one spot. I don't know how to find a guy in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and so he got in the helicopter, and they were interviewing him later, and said, well, what happened? What happened? He said, everything went wrong. There was this rope bridge that went across this ravine I was counting on using, and, and it was gone. It wasn't there. I don't know where it went. So I had to reroute to try and get around this ravine, and then my mosquito net fell apart, and so it got malaria. So I went to take my, my anti-malarial medicines, and they were all wet. They were ruined. So I got malaria, hiking through Papua New Guinea with malaria, and then the, the way I'm trying to get to this tribe is, is blocked off because there's these two other factions and they're at war. And I'm trying to avoid the war. Anyway, then the helicopter shows up and here I am. And they said, well, aren't you glad to get rescued? He goes, whoa, 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 simmer down. I was not lost. I knew where I was the whole time. I didn't ask for this helicopter. I was fine. I only got on the helicopter because I knew my buddy had gotten it at great expense. But if I had my way, I'd still be out there walking around. Um, I think you'd be dead. If you'd be walking around, somebody would be carrying you. 
He couldn't get out. He had malaria. He was lost, and he basically says when he's riding the helicopter, I didn't ask for this. Why would God save us? Verses 9 through 13, he wants us to see our need. He wants us to see our need. The people of Israel cannot hear the good news that God is redeeming them because of that which they need redeeming from. They had a broken spirit because of their harsh slavery. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. They needed saving from their slavery, but their slavery was making it impossible for them to see they needed saving. A video came out recently about a disoriented man in a burning car. Maybe you've seen it. What happens, he fell asleep in the car with it running, and while it was running, his foot was stepped on the accelerator. It was in park. So the engine revved up real high and then overheated and caught on fire. So then the police show up because people call the police, and they're trying to convince him to come out of the car, but he won't come out of the car because he just woke up. You know how that is when you just wake up. Oh, come on, i got to get woke up. But also some of the smoke and the oxygen, he didn't know what was going on. He said, you need to get out of the car. Finally, he had to break the windows, break into the car, and drag the guy out. He didn't understand what his need was. He was blind to it because of the fire and the smoke. Just like Israel here doesn't see their need. They need rescuing from slavery, but because of the situation they're in, they, they don't know what they need. Moses here is seeing nothing but failure. He's gone to Pharaoh and been rejected. He's gone to Israel and been rejected. And he sees nothing but failure, nothing but inadequacy, nothing but more trouble on the horizon. And what we discover about God is God sees absolute success in what's happening. Because God understood what Israel needed before they could experience his redemption, they needed to not only know they needed deliverance, they needed to feel it. And look at how they're described. A broken spirit under their harsh slavery. God knows they need to truly plumb the depths of how difficult a situation they're in before they're going to be ready to respond to his rescue. He wants us to see our need. Why is this so important? Later on in the wilderness, the people of Israel are going to run into hard times again. And this is what they're going to say to Moses. They're going to say, Moses, why did you take us out of Egypt, that land flowing with milk and honey? Why is that an important phrase? Because God, in his covenant, told his people, I will take you and to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. As VeggieTale says, sounds sticky. So what are they saying? The trouble we're experiencing right now tells us it would be better to be under slavery than to be with God. God's plan is worse than the slavery we were under. God knew this would happen, so he understands what he's doing here. Everything possible to help the people of Israel understand exactly what's going on. They need deliverance from slavery, and until they feel it at the core of their being, they are never going to understand what they need. Look what God commands Moses to do in verse 11 of Exodus 6. Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Israel, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. What's Moses' job? It's not complicated. What's his job? Go and tell. Is his job to convince Pharaoh? No. Is his job to put the pitch on him? Come up with the key selling points? No. Threaten him? His job is to go and tell. What was his job with the people of Israel? Go and tell. 
Moses' job is to go and tell. It's God's job to redeem, God's job to bring out, God's job to deliver. Moses' job is to go and tell the truth. And here's something we need to understand about the gospel. The gospel always tells the truth. Why would God save us? Because he wants us to see our need. And the good news of the gospel is you have need. When I was in high school, I got pneumonia. So I went to the doctor. He said, you take these antibiotics, you're going to feel better. Turns out I did. I was thankful for that. He had to tell me I had pneumonia. He had to tell me the truth. He didn't tell me I had an ingrown toenail. He told me I had pneumonia. I needed antibiotics. This is the gospel. The gospel tells us the truth. You need redemption because you're a sinner. Israel needed out of Egypt because they were slaves. We need redemption because of our sin. The gospel always tells us the truth. The good news that Jesus died on the cross is useless if you don't have a sin problem. Your sin is your problem. You've got a sin problem. Sin kills you, and it destroys everything in your life. Your envy is a problem. You think everybody else has it better than you. It drives you nuts that that guy can't do his job halfway decent, makes more money than you, has a bigger house than you. It drives you nuts that that guy's wife is nicer than your wife. It drives you nuts that those kids of your friends, why are they so good? Why can't they steal something? Their parents are terrible. They're horrible parents. Why do the horrible parents get such good kids? Now, you, none of us have ever thought this way before, right? Why does he get to drive that car? Our envy. We must have what others have. It will destroy our lives. Our sin is our problem when we see and look at what others have and are convinced we ought to. We rank better than them. We work harder than them. I know God better than them. And God seems to be blessing the socks off of that moron. You've never thought this way before. Yes, you have. Now we've got to talk about lying. <laughs> about your pride. Yeah, I need God a little. At least I'm not like that guy. He needs God a lot. Well, I'm glad he found God because he needs him a lot more than I do. You ever noticed how you know how to do everything right? That's called pride. Have you ever noticed that everybody does their best, but it's just too bad they can't measure up? That's called pride. Have you ever noticed that luckily you only have rated G sins, not rated PG and R sins like your buddies and the people you know? That's called pride. And it will kill you. It will destroy you. What's your number when it comes to greed? What's the magic number? If I had X, everything would be fine. What is it about your current situation where you can take it easy and rest? If that thing is not God, it's greed. Here's what we need to understand about our sin. These aren't hang-ups. These aren't little character flaws. These aren't little things I'm going to work on. These aren't good thing New Year's is coming up, I can do another resolution. 
Your sin is your problem, and it's a death sentence. Jesus did not die on the cross because you have a couple of character flaws. Your sin is your problem, and he died on the cross because you're a sinner, and if you had been given half a chance, you would have nailed his hands to the beam. Look at verse 9 again of Exodus 6. Moses spoke thus to the people, and they would not listen. So let's just be honest. I've just given a little diatribe on some sins. There's many others we could cover. I just don't have time. Most of you aren't listening. You've already come up with reasons. Yeah, come on, it's not a big deal. Now, listen, I'm, I mean, I got issues. Listen, sin is not one of them. Or are you going to blame others? Well, sure, I wouldn't envy if I had more stuff. Sure, I'd love my spouse more and wouldn't be envious of my buddy if I had a better spouse. Sure, I wouldn't look at other people's kids if my kids would behave. It's what you think. It's not my problem. It's not my fault. In fact, the people around me should stop flaunting their good lives so much. That's what they should do. We argue with God. We shift the blame. We seem to forget our problem is our sin. That is the problem. The problem starts in our own heart. The sin inside of us, as Paul Tripp has said, is worse than the sin around us. The problem is we need saving, we need redemption, we need to be made new. Why would God save us? He wants us to see our real need. And I don't care how far down you plumb the depths of your sin, his grace is bigger. But you will never see the extent of his grace if you refuse to acknowledge the extent of your sin. Why would God save us? He wants us to see our need. A video came out, another video, it was online, you can Google it if you want, it got a couple named Stephen Heather Winfrey, maybe you've heard of them. Uh, Steve, since he was 18, he'd had a kidney disorder, kidney failure, I guess is what you call it. And one thing led to another, it turns out that his wife was a donor match for her husband. And I, the video was kind of funny, I didn't see it, um, I got distracted. Um, she revealed to him that she was a match through baseball cards. They did baseball cards together. And she revealed that we're a match. And, and sure enough, she donated the kidney to her husband, save his life. Why would God save us? God's nature, just like Steve's wife, God's nature fits our need, which is a need of redemption. Why would God save us? He wants us to know him as the Redeemer God. Who he is fits our need. It's like Steve's wife's kidney fit him. I think of it this way. Your house catches on fire, so you call the fire department. I mean, first, obviously, you're going to post it on Facebook, and then call the fire department. My understanding is how that works now. House is on fire. Hashtag burning. Just call the fire department. Just call the fire department. The fire Department comes, they put the fire out, talking to the firefighter, and you say, I am so grateful that you became a firefighter to put out my house. The firefighter, uh, yeah, I was glad to put out your house. I didn't come a firefighter to 
put out your house. I became a firefighter. Says, that's what I want to do. I mean, you happen to also need my services, so I'm glad to help. No, 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 I know how it works. You grew up, wanted to be a firefighter because my house would one day catch on fire. And so you went to training. Think of my address, 617 Main Street. And you had that on a poster above your locker. And couldn't wait for the day when you fulfill your dream to put the fire out in my house. Like, you're an idiot. Why would God save us? He wants us to know him as the Redeemer God. That this is what is like, what he is like. His nature is a God who saves. Look again at verse 6. We read it earlier. I am the Lord. I will bring you out of Egypt, out of uh, your burdens. I will redeem you out of slavery with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people. He says this, I am your Lord. I will bring you out. My nature is a bringing you out of slavery kind of God. And he's going to do this with such power and such force that later on, Moses is just going to be uh, flabbergasted. He says this in Deuteronomy 3, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as you have? Who can do what God does? No one. Moses puts it another way here in Deuteronomy 3, if we understand it right. He says, who can do what God does? No one can. But let's just pretend for a minute there was a guy. Let's call him Bill. And he could do what God does. He could do 10 plagues and Passover and Red Sea. He could do all that. He wouldn't. But God would. That's what he's saying here. He says, no one can do what I can do. And even if there was one who would... Nobody else would. Only I would, God is saying. Only I have both the power and the nature that says, I want to save people like you. Look at verse 7 again of Exodus chapter 6. Flip back there if you have gone elsewhere. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know I am the Lord your God. This is what we call a promise. A promise of God is so certain because of God's promise-keeping nature, it's as good as done. When God makes a promise to his people, I will take you as my people, he's saying, you're my people. I will save you, which means you're saved. I will redeem you, which means you're redeemed. We see this over in Romans chapter 8, and we must... Um, let this settle into our heart. The Bible says this in Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's a promise to those of us who are believers. God will reveal glory in us, which means what? He is revealing glory in us because a promise made by God is a promise kept by God. To live now in Christ, even in suffering, is to live a life of glory, even if we may not see it. God is the promise-keeping God, and he redeems people like the people of Israel. This whole passage in Exodus chapter 6 begins in verse 1, and he says this, The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now you're in a position where you see your need. Now you're in a position where only my mighty hand will save you. I will bring you out. I will redeem you. I will deliver you. One final thing to look at, and we're going to close with this. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is astounding. 
God says this to Abraham. You know what? I appeared to Abraham, I appeared to Isaac, and I appeared to Jacob, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. That's a difficult verse to translate accurately, so I'm going to sum up what he's saying here. Abraham knew me. Isaac knew me. Jacob, he knew me. But Moses, you're going to see me do exodus. They don't even know the half of it. You are going to know me, Moses, as the Redeemer God who redeems people out of slavery. Moses, they knew me. They don't know me like you know me. Because you will know me as the God who redeems people out of slavery. Abraham sort of had an idea of this in Genesis chapter 15 when God was making the covenant with Abraham. He told him, Hey, listen, your people are going to be in a foreign land for like 400 years, and I'm going to save them out of Israel. But Moses, you get to see it happen. Abraham sort of knew me. Isaac knew me. Jacob knew me. But because, Moses, you get to see my promise kept, you know me in a whole other way. You know me as the God, the Redeemer, out of Exodus. One author has said it this way. That Exodus out of Egypt, as it fits in and shows us what redemption looks like, is the primary way we know who God is. That God is a redeemer. He is the one who saves. We're talking about Steve and Heather, the kidney duo. I wonder if she makes him wake up every morning and say, hey, thanks for the kidney. I know I would. Give it back. So the question is, before she had herself tested to find out if she was a match, was she a match? Was she a match before they got married? How about this? Was she a match before they met? So we think God is the Redeemer God because we sinned? He wasn't a Redeemer God before that? This is what he's trying to tell us. No, this is, what I, this is who I am. I didn't change. You didn't paint me into a corner and go, what am I going to do? I better be a Redeemer God, I guess. What am I going to do? He is Redeemer God. He has always been Redeemer God. And our need fits his nature perfectly. He is one who redeems. And we are ones who need to be redeemed. He is a Redeemer God by nature, not by necessity. And, and what the author of uh, Exodus, Moses, was saying is God is telling him, because you get to see this nature revealed in Exodus, Moses, you're going to know me even more than Abraham did. So where does that put you and I? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. You might want to turn there. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, if you have the authorized version in sundry times and diverse manners. That's just fun to read. I've got the ESV. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So a long time ago, God spoke to us in many times, many ways, through the prophets. Now I'm going to suggest the way the book of Hebrews starts, he's going to emphasize Christ as superior to Moses and the tabernacle and the temple. So I might suggest when he says, of the prophets, and chief among them is Moses. In many times and in various ways in the past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets like Moses. 
but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his what? Son. Moses, you know God so much better than Abraham did. And now God comes to you. What's he say? Moses didn't have a clue. You know me by my son. My son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for your sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Moses knew me, but not like this, you know Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Acts 4.12, what does it say? There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And what is that name? We're going we're gonna to have to do no better than that. Dude kind of died for us. There is now therefore no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the saving God. Why would he save us? So we could see that he's trustworthy. How do we know he's trustworthy? Try and find him in a tomb. He's not there, by the way. He rose from the dead. That's trustworthy. Why would he save us? We have to know our need. Woman at the well, he told me everything I ever did. He knows everything you've ever done. Why would God save us? Because he wants us to know him. He is Redeemer God, and we are those who need to be redeemed. What this tells us is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the act of salvation for all of human history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the climax of the redemptive story. God says, it is finished, puts an exclamation point on it, kicks the stone away from the tomb and walks out. Why would God save us? He is trustworthy. He wants us to know our need and he wants us to know him as Redeemer God. 